Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Though President Trump lost in California by a wide margin last November, many Republican leaders from the state remain loyal to him as he tries to overturn the election he lost. From Fresno Representative Devin Nunes, who Trump has awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, to Congressman Mike Garcia, who barely won re-election in his L.A. and Ventura County district, but has announced he'll oppose the certification of President-elect Joe Biden's victory. We look at the political calculations of California's Republican leaders and the party's prospects here after a Trump presidency. That's next on Forum. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. As President Trump moves from venting his frustration at his election loss with claims of fraud to going as far as pressuring Georgia elections officials to find him votes or Republican lawmakers to oppose certification of Joe Biden's Electoral College victory, many California Republican leaders are remaining loyal to him, even after he resoundingly lost the state. In this hour, we discuss what's behind GOP support for Trump in California and why some political observers are optimistic about the Republican Party's prospects here. Joining me now is Lonnie Chen, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, former policy director for Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. Thanks for joining us, Lonnie Chen. Lonnie Chen, are you there? And while we try to connect with Lonnie Chen, I'll also introduce Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. Thanks for joining us, Marisa Lagos. Morning, Mina. Also with us, Mike Madrid, co-founder of The Lincoln Project and a political consultant and partner at Grassroots Lab. Thanks for joining us, Mike Madrid. Uh, Let's see if we can try to get (laughs) those connections established so they can hear us. I I can hear them, so I believe they're there uh, in terms of movement in the background there. But Marisa, I, I will start with you. Can you give us a snapshot of how prominent California Republicans are reacting to President Trump's recent behavior, especially the things that I just outlined in the intro there. 
Well, I mean, perhaps the most prominent one, Kevin McCarthy, who's the House Minority Leader, narrowly lost, of course, the uh, speaker vote to Nancy Pelosi just in the past few days. Um, he has been a loyal deputy of the president's, his entire presidency at one point, uh, the president called him Mike Heaven. Um, you know, he represents Bakerfield. It's a very safe seat. I don't think he has, you know, had some of the same kind of pressures we've seen in other places. And so he has been very supportive, um, has indicated that he will support this effort in Congress tomorrow to overturn some of the states that Republicans insist there are questions about. Um, of course, important to note that in none of those cases are they questioning the outcomes of other races on the ballot, including the congressional races uh, that many of their members won. Right. Um, the other person who has spoken out in favor of this effort is Mike Garcia. He, of course, uh, was elected after Katie Hill stepped down from that district, District 25 in uh, northern Los Angeles County, southern Ventura County. He uh, won re-election narrowly, I think, by a couple hundred votes, like 333 votes, uh, against a Democrat, and has been, um, I think, the most strident other than McCarthy in saying that he will support the president in this. Um, a lot of other newer members and even uh, some incumbents have been either silent or, in the case of Tom McClintock, very conservative uh, Republican uh, from the Sacramento area, um, he actually has pushed back and said that this really undermines democracy. So it's definitely a mix, Mina. I think, interestingly, people, including Congressman Devin Nunes, a very staunch ally of the president who actually received the Medal of uh, Freedom from the president this week, haven't seen, said anything. And some of the other new congr congressional members who flip seats in Orange County have also stayed silent. So I think um, it's, it's kind of going two ways. Either you want to back up the president or you just prefer not to take the question. Well, Lonnie Chen, are you there? Yes, Lonnie Chen? Yeah. Hello. <laughs> Great. I can hear you and so glad to have you with us. Um, you know, could you give us, well, let's start with Kevin McCarthy or Devin Nunes. Sort of what are the political calculations for both of these men right now? Well, I think there are a few. First of all, there is thought that they are probably giving to what their constituencies, you know, they represent, both of them, relatively conservative constituencies, uh, you know, what what their constituencies are for. Uh, and it's not going to be universal. Obviously, there's going to be significant disagreement amongst people in their districts. But they probably feel, and I'm sure they've got some empirical evidence to show, although I haven't seen it, that they that a majority, a healthy majority of people in their constituencies, in their districts, uh, support this sort of action where they are being uh, incredibly loyal to the president and to what the president is arguing and what the president wants to do. So, you know, that that's one dynamic. I think a second dynamic is, you know, they probably believe that continuing to support Donald Trump continuing to be with him, to side with him, will ensure uh, Trump's support in the future for their own um, their own political situations. And and look, it's uh, it's always a dicey bet uh, placing uh, this uh, this bet on Donald Trump being loyal in return. But it, I, I do think that's part of the calculus is figuring that they can continue to have the support of Donald Trump even after he leaves office on January the 20th. Because they believe that years from now that he will still be incredibly important in terms of endorsements, in terms of his ability to be a kingmaker and so on. Well, I, I think they think he's going to be a factor. And, and it's not an unreasonable point of view, given that Trump does have 
uh, a considerable following even after his loss, even after all of the rhetoric uh, after the election. He does have a have a constituency and and he is a media force. He is going to have a ton of Twitter followers. He's going to have whatever he decides to do, whether it's a new media organization or co-opting another media organization. He is going to have significant influence in that way. And, you know, thinking toward the future, even if Trump doesn't have an official role in the Republican Party, he certainly will be a, I think, a voice that some people, at least in the party, are are going to be attentive to. So, Mike Madrid, is it all just political expediency, you think? Or, I mean, Mike Garcia, for for example, is a bit of a head scratcher, given the fact that his district went for Biden by 10 points. He won by like 300 votes or so or a little more than that. And he's coming out and announcing that he will oppose the Electoral College certification process. Yeah, I think it's a little bit too elementary to suggest it's just political opportunism, though there is some elements of that. The other is it's just plain fear, it's fear of retribution and it's fear of the base. Keep in mind, you don't even need to have you know 90% of Republicans supporting Donald Trump. Even if a third or 40% of them you know strongly support the president, you don't have the ability politically to back off of him. And keep keep also in mind the fact that you know the fear and fear-based politics is what has driven Donald Trump's rise to the presidency. It's what has held his base together. Fealty is the number one characteristic of Trumpism. It is the one thing that he demands above all else. This is not an ideological party anymore. It is not a party based off of beliefs. It's a party that no longer has a platform. It is a party that is based entirely around the persona of fealty and loyalty to Donald Trump. And when that becomes the measure stick within which politicians have to gauge themselves, you begin to see more and more of this extremist behavior, which has begun to take hold in the Republican Party at the highest levels. Right. The Senate itself has at least a dozen Republican senators willing to stand in violation of basic constitutional principles over 100 Republican members in the House. This does not suggest, although I think we're getting close to it, that there's a large, overwhelming majority of Republicans who support Donald Trump in this quixotic uh, endeavor. But what it does mean is that the party no longer has a core ideological base. And so we should not be surprised when its representatives, its elected representatives do not. It is simply behaving rationally in a very irrational construct which again, it's all based off of tribal loyalty. This isn't about marginal tax rates or what healthcare policies we should be supporting. It's whether or not you support or are willing to bow, take a knee to the dear leader. That's the objective, that is the goal. And it is much more fear-based than it is positively trying to garner support for a man who has demonstrated no proclivity outside of his children to be loyal to anyone. And that explains for you why, say, even in the face of facts, like, for example, you know, Lonnie Chen was talking about, yes, you know, they have the polling that suggests that their districts are very much believe what the president is saying uh, in terms of the election and the election outcome. But that even in the face of facts, even though it is not true, it is still they are still capable of just going ahead with this this argument that uh, that they oppose the outcome of the election. Well, in some ways, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. But the truth is, if you look at a district like Mike Garcia's, Joe Biden won that district by 10 points. So he's he's making a bad political calculation either way. But one of the truisms that remains in politics is you cannot run if you don't have a base. 
And as I was saying earlier, when loyalty is the only test, when there's no ideological standard anymore for a political party, you essentially have devolved into a gang. And the gang demands that its leader be followed. And if you don't, if you betray that, then you are ostracized. We send you out to the deserts to die of political exposure, and we run you out of run you out of town. And that that's that's what's happening. That's Mike Garcia's dilemma. Is he look? This is an educated man. He knows what he's doing. Most of these members, I'd say ninety percent of them, Louis Gilmer being the possible exception. These are educated people. These are informed people. These are knowledgeable people who know that what they are doing is a threat to our republic. They know it undermines democracy. And what they are doing is placing their own political survival above the best interests of our country. That's just that's just it's just it's evident on its face. And so when you have a party that has devolved to that point, we know that you cannot run without consolidating the Republican Party, even in some of these these districts, which which are really not red Republican districts. They're very marginal districts here in California, but you cannot alienate your base because your career would be over. And that's the that is the calculation that has been made. Lonnie Chen, what's your reaction to Mike Madrid's assessment? I mean, that the Republican Party basically no longer has a platform. Well, I I think it's certainly true that over the last couple of years in particular, uh, there has been much more of a division within the Republican Party uh, when it comes to matters of public policy. And and most of that division has been siding with the president on on a series of different issues. I mean, let's just take, for example, the recent debate over uh, over relief uh, because of COVID-19 and the uh, proposal the president had or the proposal the president supported to expand spending on the per person stimulus from $600, which was what was in the bill that was signed into law to $2,000. That is something that a number of Republicans traditionally have opposed for fiscal reasons. They don't believe it's responsible to have untargeted aid. Uh, And yet you saw a number of Republicans supportive of that proposal, not because it was consistent with with a set of principles, but because uh, they wanted to support where the president was. Now, I do think it's the case that it's a little bit facile to argue that there isn't a a base of support anymore for traditional conservative principles. And I do think the next couple of years, the next couple, uh, you know, years and perhaps decades will will be about recovering this uh, this element of of a, of a conservative policy agenda, conservative governing agenda, and trying to recover that and trying to develop that and trying to give new life and new meaning to that. But I do think over the last couple of years, there has been a tendency to deviate from those principles, in part because people have wanted to be supportive of the president. But I I don't cast aside so easily the notion that there are people, even within that Republican voting base, who still are supportive of, uh, uh, of conservative principles. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at what's behind GOP support for Trump in California and the party's prospects here going forward. We're talking with Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show, Mike Madrid, co-founder of the Lincoln Project and a political consultant and partner at Grassroots Lab, Lonnie Chen, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, former policy director, from Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. And you, our listeners, are with us. What do you think of the state of the Republican Party in California? Do you vote Republican? And if so, what do you think of the direction of the party and of Trump's behavior? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Chris tweets, the Republicans who will be baselessly objecting electoral votes tomorrow know it will not have any impact on the actual election results. They're simply trying not to lose MAGA support in a post-Trump presidency world. That echoes what you were saying, Mike Madrid. But Lonnie Chen made the point that, you know, over time during this post-Trump period, that the Republicans will start to try to reestablish and and rebuild because there is support for traditional conservative principles. What do you think of the prospects of that? I think that's very hopeful. I'm, I'm, I think it's nice that Lonnie believes that. Um, there's no evidence of that. In fact, there's every evidence it's moving in the exact opposite direction. You have to understand Donald Trump violated basically every principle, core principle of Republican what has defined the modern Republican Party since the end of World War II, really within his first 18 months in office. This is somebody who opposes free trade, who opposes free markets, who's run up the debt and the credit card in the country in, in an inexplicable way. Um, he is somebody who's, who's, again, we can go list by list. We probably don't have enough time here to explain just how many tenets of modern conservatism have been violated. And not only did you not see any real protestation from elected Republican leadership, what you saw was cheering from the Republican base, which is what most of these elected officials are afraid of. I think to believe that somehow conservatism, as we have known it through most of our adult lives, um, has an opportunity to come back is to truly not understand the significant demographic, social and economic changes which have defined this new Republican Party under Donald Trump. It's not just that we had some weird hangover and we're gonna wake up after this and go, okay, let's go back to normal. The Republican party is forever changed in a way that is driven far more by populism and nationalism than I think we have even come to expect and understand at this moment in time. Literally as we speak, literally as we speak, there are militia members gathering in our nation's capital at the direction of the president of the United States, the Republican president of the United States. To think that somehow people are just going to forget about this as a driving element of the party and that these people, by the thousands that are showing up and following this president blindly are somehow going to adhere to Reagan-style conservative principles, I think vastly underestimates the scope and the size of what is happening, not just in the Republican Party, though that's truly the case, but in our society. There's a larger societal shift that is happening that is redefining the right-left spectrum as we've known it, and the Republican Party will never go back. There may be there may be a, a you know a small percentage of adherents like Wanhe, like myself, who who understand conservative principles and spend our life working on them. But to to see how quickly and malleable the Republican base has been 
would suggest very similar to what my good friend Stuart Stevens, you know, Republican political consultant for many years defined as, 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 as this being a lie, the Republican Party being a lie. You cannot move your core ideology that quickly, that swiftly in a 180 degree direction and also suggest that you truly believe in these core values and principles. It's just not possible. Well, Marisa Lagos, the the House seats that Republicans were able to take back, for example, in Orange County with the victories of Young Kim and Michelle Steele, also with David Valadeo in the Central Valley uh, and and Mike Garcia. I mean, some are saying that that actually is evidence that there is an appetite for a less extreme version of the GOP getting back to some principles like low taxes and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's almost like two different parties when you look at most of the kind of conversations in California among Republicans compared to to a lot of what Trump is saying. I mean, we've seen um, even in the legislature where you have pretty conservative Republicans um, from more rural parts of the state, et cetera. There's just some issues that are just not as divisive in California as they might be nationally. Um, and I do think, you know, looking at the Mike Garcia calculation in deciding to come out for Trump. I mean, maybe that's loyalty to Trump because Trump did support him, but it also might be a calculation that he thinks his base wants this. I think, you know, Democrats are kind of salivating looking at that going, hey, this is going to be our attack line because, you know, Congress people are basically running from the minute they get sworn in for the next seat in two years. Um, Young Kim, Michelle Steele in Orange County. I mean, Michelle Steele's really interesting, right? Her husband was part of the RNC. They've been very close to sort of the Republican establishment. Um, they both, I think, just held Trump at arm's distance during the campaign. And as I said before, have been very quiet about all of this. If you look at their Twitter feeds and what they've been saying publicly, they're really talking about the agendas they ran on and kind of avoiding this issue. And so I do think that um, there are some opportunities for Republicans in California. Um, some of them are not, you know, again, are sort of in the vacuum of the national politics. I mean, when you look at the recall effort that's being launched against um, Gavin Newsom and the fact that former uh, San Diego mayor Kevin Faulkner is running. Uh, he, he's launched an exploratory committee to run against Newsom in 2022, regardless of whether this recall makes the ballot. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's really uh, avoiding questions about Trump saying the election's over, trying to focus on what he sees as Newsom's vulnerabilities. So I think in California, what we see with Republicans is they really are focused less on these bigger kind of partisan fights um, and more on attacking what they see as the problems with Democratic power. And when you have Democrats who have been in such a powerful position, supermajority of the legislature for the past few years, majority of the legislature for longer than that, um, you know, statewide offices for the last decade, uh, no Republican has won right. a decade and a half. Right, I mean, 14 years. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a different calculation. And I think what we're seeing here is Republicans see a real opportunity in um, this horrible pandemic and, and, and the way that, you know, it's been so challenging for really anybody to get under control. Um, and so they are not it's not like in some districts it can be the Trump playbook, but I think more broadly, it's a different conversation here than what we're seeing in D.C. And I do think, you know, if you think back, Mina, a lot of these things harken back to some extent to the Tea Party and some of those divisions between the kind of Republican establishment and the insurgency. Of course, the Tea Party was all about not spending money and conservative values around fiscal stuff. Um, but I do think that you, th those same schisms are really coming up when you see someone like Mitch McConnell kind of quietly trying to keep the Senate in line to say, we got to move on. You know, let's focus on Georgia. We're not going to try to overturn a Democratic election um, compared, you know, to 
the Mike Garcia's and Kevin McCarthy's of the world who are just saying, you know, we're sticking with Trump no matter what. Well, let me go to caller Mark in Redwood City. Hi, Mark. Oh, I think we just lost Mark. Let me go to Domingo in Torrance. Hi, Domingo. Oh, hi. How are you? Thank you well, for taking my call. Yes, go right ahead. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I had a comment. Uh, uh, I'm an immigrant from South America, and I bought it Democratic most of my life. And, uh, and I'm beginning to turn a little bit, not so much because of the message. I think it's getting uh, too far left. And, my, uh, and what I wanted to say is that I think most people, like my friends and I and people that I know, are turned off by both extremes, left and right. And we just want a candidate that is a reasonable person, that, does, that has reasonable ideas, that can work. So whether they're Democratic or Republican, perhaps the label isn't that important anymore, I hmm. feel. And I think that we're looking for results, and I think that we are looking for, for people that aren't extremists. Most people, I, my wife is from the Midwest, and most of her family feels the same way. And I think that, 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 uh, that the headlines capture our attention, left and right, both extremes. But when it comes to voting, I think um, perhaps those don't capture it as well as we think they do. Domingo, thanks. Lonnie Chen, I'd like to get your reaction to what Domingo is saying. And also, if you could lay out where you think Democrats are vulnerable, even in this very Democratic state. Yeah, well, it, it is, first of all, refreshing to hear what Domingo had to say, which is that he's looking for reasonable people. I, I think that there's a certain element of that that we could all use, which is a, a, a little bit of a, of a lowering of the volume and an understanding of the problems that we face. And I think that's precisely why uh, Democrats do find themselves in a potentially compromised position in California. Uh, I, I would say the biggest points of vulnerability are uh, just broadly speaking, the mismanagement of basic elements of state government. I mean, you look at the inability, for example, to administer the state's uninsurance program, unemployment uninsurance program properly. You've got people who aren't supposed to be getting paid, getting paid, and people who need the help not getting it. Uh, you have the overall management of what's happened with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic, inconsistent guidance from state officials and local public health officials, the inability to determine exactly what the right actions are for ordinary citizens who just want to live their lives every day. These are the sorts of things that I think really anger people about. And it, it's not so much Democrats specifically in the sense of just who's in charge. And because it's been a one-party state for so long, because there hasn't been any effort at all to really hold them accountable, I think people say, yeah, there has been some overreach. And it does explain why people like Young Kim uh, and Michelle Steele were successful in part. They were good candidates with a good message. And they understood that people didn't want the same old, same old uh, <clears throat> sent back into power again. And I do think that message is potentially compelling as we look ahead. People like Kevin Falcon and others who are considering uh, these statewide offices in 2022. There is an opportunity here to say, look, we're going to hold uh, folks accountable for uh, for this mismanagement. Mina, can I jump in? Yeah, Marisa, go ahead. I totally agree with Lonnie. I think, and because if you look across both the state and the nation, it's clear that neither party has like been able to get their arms around this pandemic. Um, as an aside, I would say a lot of the blame for that should fall on the federal government and their lack of leadership on this issue. But but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because Newsom's in the governor's mansion and whoever the mayor is of L.A., you know, it, they're going to be held responsible. The irony is, and I think this is going to be interesting to watch someone like Faulkner run on, which is like, how much better is San Diego than anywhere around it, right, that might be run by a Democrat. Um, but I think Lonnie is right. It, you don't always need to be able to make that case if people are just angry at who's at the top. And we see this again and again in elections, which is 
you know, probably rightfully so, whoever the party in power is, they get held accountable, even if things don't change that dramatically uh, for most people between, um, you know, the, the elections. Well, Tom writes, can we call this what it is? Democrats being in a position to have to handle COVID. Trump's abdication got to have all the anger placed on Democratic governors and state parties. Yeah. Corey tweets, California shows that when Republican congressional candidates are diverse, bipartisan, well-funded and focused on local issues, they can win even on the ballot with Donald Trump. Voters will split tickets, but Sacramento special interests, flood state and local races to lock us out. Jordan writes, I'm a Democrat, but in response to a Democrat party that has leaned too left, that has leaned left too much since Trump, I find myself voting for Republicans. I do not support Trump per se, but have definitely moved right on business and tax issues. Let me go to caller Steve in Oakland. Hi, Steve. Join us. Hi. You know, I, I'm I, I'm far left, but that last comment that you made that somebody who who a Republican that can go to taxes and and spending and all of that, I, I I'm totally fine with that. I'm just I just I listen to these conversations and I I feel like there's a collective cowardice to bring up bring up the elephant in the room. One of your guests said that 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 Trumpism has no core value or ideology. And it, it, it's this true, true undercurrent of the whole darkening of America, or I guess I should say changing demographics. Um, they're, they're making their last stand. There's this old guard that thinks America should be a certain way, and they're clinging to it. And Trumpism is just the core foundation of that last stand. Uh, Steve, and nobody wants to bring it up. Well, I'm glad you brought it up, and I want to get Mike Madrid to respond because I believe he was the one who made that comment. Mike Madrid, your response to Steve. Well, Steve, you're exactly right. I'm just a little bit concerned because I've been spending the better part of three years saying that as vocally and loudly as I possibly could. So uh, maybe, maybe let me say it a little bit louder. Trumpism and nationalist populism is largely defined by white identity and white grievance politics. The Republican Party is far more aligned with a, with a politics of a party defined by race and racial issues, especially white grievance issues, than they are by any traditional conservative metric and ideology. So point, you know, period, end of story. That is just quantifiable as a fact. If you're looking at and studying voters as closely as I have, especially Republican voters for the past 25, 30 years, that is clearly the defining issue for what is motivating uh, voters. That's why you have a build the wall chance. That's why you have the Wuhan flu coming up. That's why these dog whistles have now become a bullhorn. That is what the rallying cry is. And it's symptomatic of a change in America. To your point, I think you're exactly right. And that is a danger. And it's a danger and it's a threat to the Republic, not just because it's immoral, not just because it's, it violates our sensibilities, but because what happens in an environment like that in a multicultural America is it starts to rot at the underpinnings of democracy because we are no longer allowing the acceptance of elections where one tribe, quote unquote, tribe loses. We would rather burn down the Constitution, American institutions, the electoral process and elections itself than cede victory to another group with different ideas because it's no longer a battle of ideas. It's a battle of others. It's people who are not us and the mind in the, a, a wide swath of Trump supporters. These people are not truly Americans because they're not white. They're not white Christians. I mean, that's just candidly, that's what is driving a very significant segment, a majority of Trump supporters and what Trumpism is and de facto uh, the Republican Party. That's just that's just the trajectory. Anybody watching this over the past 30 years 
will know that again to Steve's point. And that I think is going to be one of the defining problems, not just for the Republican Party, but for our democracy until this demographic bubble shakes out. What we're seeing nationally is not terribly dissimilar to what we saw in the mid 1990s through the mid you know, 2000s here in California. This demographic bubble will shake out nationally, but it's gonna come at an extraordinary cost to our social and political fabric, and we're already seeing that happening today. Okay, Mike Madrid, but you're also a Republican political consultant. So, I mean, what do you say? <laughs> what do you advise in terms of a strategy, right, moving forward, well, considering your view of where the Republican Party is headed? Well, again, and, and as a co-founder of the Lincoln Project, I've found myself in the curious position of fighting against the Republican Party in this most recent election because it is the, the single greatest threat to democracy and to my country at this moment in time. The challenge, and again, it's a very outside possibility, but it's to hope that this small percentage of adherence of Republicanism, conservatism rather, that has defined the Republican Party up until the Trump era can create some sort of resurgence. I am not hopeful. I am not hopeful. Um, but I, I, I think the fight is worth having because the stakes are so high. What I will say is this, there was some discussion earlier about, you know, you know, these Republican members of Congress and representing their districts well and all this sort of thing. Look, the truth of the matter is what happened in California happened all over the entire country. And it was what's to Domingo, your previous caller's uh, uh, sentiment was, this was about what we call negative partisanship. People are voting against the extremes in both parties. So it shouldn't be striking at all since we've seen this, this same trend since the mid-1990s where people are voting against parties, not voting for them, and so to see people voting for Joe Biden, for example, and Mike Garcia's congressional district by a plus 10 point factor, but also supporting him by 330 votes shouldn't be surprising. They are voting against the extremes in the Democratic Party, the same way they are rejecting the extremes at the top of the ticket. This is not a mandate for the Republican Party. It's, it's the exact opposite. It's also not a mandate for the Democratic Party. It is the exact opposite. And so voters, I think Domingo's call and his comments were right dead on. People are more defined now by the extremes they are voting against than what they are voting for. And what is really important about that is it explains clearly the devolution of the two parties that we have. Is, is when people are voting more by what they're defined against as opposed to what they are for, you begin to see a more tribal identity rather than ideological identity on political parties. We'll have more with Mike Madrid, Marisa Lagos, and Lonnie Chen. After the break, I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at what's behind GOP support for Trump in California as his behavior becomes increasingly uh, dangerous, potentially illegal. Many are, are saying that it makes them concerned for the health of our democracy. 
At the same time, though, there are challenges as well as opportunities ahead for California Republicans, and some are optimistic about the party's prospects here. We're talking with KQED's Marisa Lagos, political correspondent and also co-host of KQED's political breakdown show. Mike Madrid is with us, co-founder of the Lincoln Project and a political consultant and partner at Grassroots Lab. Lonnie Chen, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, former policy director for Mitt Romney. And... Lonnie Chen, I want to get your response to Nate here. Nate in Foster City, join us. Hello, can you hear me? I can. Uh, hi. Yeah. So, uh, what I'm what I'm calling about is why don't we have uh, more more democratic means of selecting our um, our candidates, like ranked choice voting, which has been uh, instituted in some other states, but uh, and and or means like that to open doors for independent candidates and to open the doors for uh, more more granulated points of view than simply, uh, you know, the the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Uh, Nate, because, yeah, yeah, thanks. And, and, you know, a listener also echoes this comment. How influential has the open primary system been in ushering in the destruction of the Republican and other minority parties in the state of California? How healthy is a one-party state for those who reside there? So, Lonnie Chen, just in terms of the process here, do you think that that plays a role? Yeah, the, the electoral process, without question, has an impact on the outcomes we get. And, and the fact of the matter is that there had been a big hope behind uh, the open primary, certainly here in California, that it would tend to moderate the kinds of candidates we saw. The empirical evidence so far doesn't suggest that's actually happened, that that in fact we're getting roughly similar types of candidates as we got before the open primary. And if anything else, what we're seeing is in some cases the the lack of, of a real um, ideological or significant division between candidates, as was the case in the Senate race in California in 2018, for example, when two Democrats made, made the runoff. You weren't seeing a lot of ideological diversity necessarily uh, in that situation. Uh, what I will say is I think it is high time for electoral reform, and it's a, it's a problem not just in California but elsewhere. The reason that you have the systems you have is because the two parties largely control the process through which electoral reform would happen. And, and so as a result, you have a system that's heavily biased in favor of both institutional political parties. Uh, that goes for redistricting. It goes for uh, the processes by which people get on the ballot, basic ballot access questions, for example, are dominated by the incumbent political parties. And so it, you have a little bit of a self-reinforcing system that's very, very difficult to break. We've seen that in California. There are some states like Maine where you've seen changes instituted in part because there's a strong independent streak and independents have managed to win. And therefore, they're able to perpetuate the kinds of reforms that I think people here, at least some people here, might be interested in seeing. Well, Michael writes, Trump doesn't give up easily. And the problem with traditional conservative principles is that they include selling out the American working man and woman. Free trade and free markets means a continuing race to the bottom. A listener tweets, more Bay Area folks need to pay attention to the valley. These folks can be too easily swayed. They need to feel heard and cared about. They need honest leaders and honest information. It's a neglected place that needs to change. I'm not sure about too easily swayed, but... Um, there is, I think one of the things that has come up a lot is that in many ways, California really is, Lonnie Chen, sort of a, a complicated nation state. <laughs> and yeah. so uh, I know you need to leave us at the break. I did want to ask you if you could just leave us with your thoughts about the party's prospects here in a state as diverse as California. And also if you are optimistic. 
I am optimistic. I do think that there are elements of a, a multicultural, diverse uh, a party that is focused on issues, not just for those at the top, but for people throughout uh, the different parts of society. It, it's not a vision that appears particularly close at this time, but it's one that I think if the right people can engage and invest in, uh, w- we could see some progress. And I think we've seen the seeds of that in California. I think people are frustrated with one party rule here. And I think that could be the genesis of something new. Of course, as with every uh, nascent movement, there's the possibility that it never goes anywhere. But one hopes that there is that opportunity to have a truly competitive political landscape in California, where people can be deciding between candidates of reasonable disagreements and make their choices based on policy and on reason rather than on than on emotion and the kinds of things that unfortunately I think have divided us and made our politics worse. So I am hopeful, uh, but, but I might be the only one. So we'll see. Even with, say, I mean, how long do you think the taint of President Trump's post-election behavior could last? Also because, you know, the point has been made that that while it ultimately will fail and, and be futile, the damage that's done to democracy by undermining public faith in our electoral system is strong. There has been damage done, and I do think that there are elements of this that will remain and that people are going to have to think about and, and be able to not to explain away, but to be able to draw a contrast with and to be able to say you can be for things like conserv- a conservative vision of what government should do, a responsible government that's responsive to people. And you can be for those sorts of things, but also stand against the kinds of shenanigans that we've seen that are fundamentally anti-democratic and anti-conservative at base. Uh, it, it's it's going to take time for that to flesh out. But I do think it's important for people to be able to speak their minds on those things. And, and you know, we'll see where that leads. But ultimately, there has to be a home for people who want, you know, a, a more conservative vision of government, a more con- conservative vision of what government should do. And I think the Republican Party can be that place again. Lonnie Chen, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, mm-hmm. former policy director for Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We're also talking with Mike Madrid, co-founder of the Lincoln Project and a political consultant and partner at Grassroots Lab, Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED, co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. And you, our listeners, of course, are with us. 866-733-6786 is the number to call to join the conversation. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Let me go to Cecile in Berkeley. Hi, Cecile. Thank you. Um, I, I wish I had about a half hour to speak, but I know I don't have that. So I'll, I'll just say I feel the demonization of the so-called left of the Democratic Party is really wrong. I believe 90% of the population does believe in Social Security and health care for all. And I watched um, a wonderful documentary on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, And I would love to have Domingo watch that. She is an amazing human being, and she cares about working people. And there's nothing leftist about that. The terminology is wrong. Young people, and I'm an older, older person, younger people really understood Bernie Sanders. He was not, uh, you know, uh, calling the socialist phrase, is not a negative to me. I don't care what words you use. I believe in working against the mass um, abuse by corporations of Amazon, of Facebook, of Jeff Bezos, of 
Uh, Elon Musk, this is horrible, horrible, horrible. They don't pay their taxes. Hmm. They don't believe in government. They don't believe in education for all. It's really dangerous, and I don't understand why we're not getting that through. Fox News has been um, a huge propaganda machine, and that is wrong. So I want to speak for what is so-called left which to me means sanity, sanity. Cecilia, I'd love to speak yeah. to Domingo. I wish he could get in touch with me. We should have a discussion, <laughs> Mr. Well, Domingo, because, you know, that middle of the road sometimes is not middle of the road, and it is not in favor of all the people. Well, Cecile, thanks. I mean, Domingo isn't here, but Marisa Lagos is. I'd like to get your reaction to what Cecile just said, Marisa. Well, I think she hits on something really important, which is that Republicans and particularly Trump are good at branding. I mean, they have done an excellent job because she's right. If you take some of these policies in a vacuum and just ask people where, whether they support, you know, more access to health care, uh, things like that, you do see a, a broad support, um, more so among Democrats, but certainly among some folks who consider themselves more conservative. And I think that the Republican Party prior to Trump, but especially under him, has been very good at that. And I don't think Republic the Democrats did a great job at responding. I mean, I think the socialist label did hurt some, uh, especially congressional candidates who lost their seats this time. Um, and so I think that, you know, part of the conversation is about the way we talk about these things and whether one party can really do the job of making their case in a way uh, that works. Um, I do think Democrats were probably hurt in this area when we talk about sort of the PR of their policies by the fact that there was such a long and drawn out um, and at times very, you know, uh, intense uh, primary process. I think for the party that needed to happen because you didn't want another coordination, but it did cause other challenges. Um, and I think in California, you know, both to her point and to what Lonnie was talking about, about. It's interesting because if you look at Democrats in Sacramento, sure, there are things that overwhelmingly pass here, you know, immigration, support for, you know, immigration reform, support for health care. But when you look at some of the issues of, you know, fiscal conservancy, whether you're more pro-business or siding with labor, you there are schisms within the Democratic Party in that caucus. Um, you've seen some more sort of moderate business friendly Democrats almost take up the mantle that Republicans would have held 20 years ago in this state. So I, I, I think that you know, for those of us who pay super close attention to us, there's sometimes more nuance than what we hear when all we do is tune in to say a debate between a Republican and a Democrat for um, president. And it is and it does become this sort of, you know, question over socialism versus fiscal conservatism, which, of course, it's not as if uh, has really been what happened in D.C. under Trump for the past four years. Mm. Well, let me go to caller Jim now in Oxnard. Hi, Jim. Join us. Hi, um, I was listening to Mike Madrid uh, as one of the co-founders of the Lincoln Project, and I kept waiting for him to comment on the possibility or feasibility uh, with their strength and their context and their knowledge of starting a third party. It seems to me that if nothing else we have in front of us now, uh, firm ground, people are looking for people who are going to come out and say, yes, we want to educate our people and we don't want them burdened by a large debt, but here's how we're going to fund it. We're not going to, and not, not a two-sentence explanation, but an explanation that says we're going to be fiscally 
We're going to be on the money fiscally. People are free. Uh, so I think we need somebody who's going to educate the public, but I would love to see a third party because I think they would be very, very influential. Mike Madrid, your reaction to Jim? Well, Jim, I appreciate that. I will say from the beginning, when we founded the Lincoln Project about a year ago, there's going to be kind of a very significant change in direction, I think, coming up. But none of us, none of the eight founders, original founders, believe that uh, forming a new party is the right way to go. Might be potentially because we're, we've all been in party politics for so long, we've kind of um, had it with that. I just, I don't believe that a third party kind of a centrist solution really up captures where this country is at at this moment in time. I've been listening for 20 years, people saying the parties are too far out of whack. We need a centrist party. The truth is there's no evidence, there's no data suggesting that there is this wide swath of unrepresented people in the middle, unfortunately. I think, again, there's, there's a lot of social change that is happening that is driving what has culminated in Trumpism and the extremism in the Democratic Party. I'm not convinced that it's a new party that can solve that problem or that it's parties at all that can solve that problem. In fact, my view has grown over the past year to come to the belief that it's parties that are exacerbating these tensions in a, in a pluralistic democratic society. And I think we may need to take this moment to look back to the founders, George Washington specifically, who advised us against, very strongly against, the formation of political parties in order to make a democracy work in a better, healthier way. I, I tend to agree with Washington on that. We're talking about California Republican leaders, the direction of the party with Mike Madrid and Marisa Lagos. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. So, Mike Madrid, there's a couple of uh, comments here that I'd, I'd like to get your reaction to because they both specifically uh, mention you. One, a criticism, a pushback. The other, uh, somebody who has a question about how to communicate well with people of different political views. Let me read Adriana's tweet. Mike Madrid has some nerve detailing the way the GOP has fundamentally changed. That's hokum. Racism, anti-immigrant sentiment, carnivorous capitalism, resistance to women's equality have always been hallmarks of conservatism. Trump is not an outlier. He's the fulcrum. Your thoughts? I heard a lot of this. It's not very unfortunate because it's not healthy dialogue in the political process or the political system to suggest that like an Arnold Schwarzenegger or a John McCain was a racist or they were xenophobes. It's just it's downright silly and probably doesn't merit a lot of discussion about it. I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what conservatism is and the belief that perhaps smaller government is a better way to approach some of our social ills is not inherently racist. I think that this kind of dialogue, unfortunately, has become too commonplace. And in the same way that Republicans just, uh, you know, diminish or marginalize Democratic beliefs by calling them socialists, Democrats too often fall into the trap of simply saying Republicans, every policy Republicans espouse are racist and xenophobic. Uh, it has the same way of diminishing your own voice in the public square. So I'll leave it at that. Can well, I then this listener writes, I appreciate... Oh. Sorry, go ahead, Marisa, oh, you wanted I, to jump in? Yeah, I just want to say, I think that obviously Trump has really played on racist tropes um, to fuel a lot of his rise, but neither party, you know, has, if you look historically, the Democrats, um, 
really led the way in the mid 20th century around voter suppression, the, the Dixiecrats in the South. So I think that we need to be aware of our nation's history more broadly when we talk about racism in politics and acknowledge where it's come from in both parties historically and what's fueling that. Um, and, and I agree with Mike. I think that there are people within the party and policies that certainly have underpinnings um, of, uh, of racism. And, and you do need to sort of distinguish between those if you're going to have an actual productive discussion about this. And I think that, I don't know, I just would encourage everybody to become a bit of more of a student of history if they're involved politically now, because if you look at the past century, um, it's it's been, uh, both parties have acted really terribly at times when it comes to race relations and how we treat people. Um, and I do think a lot of the socialism attacks do have that underpinning of not wanting to help people who look other than. Um, so I just want to just wanted to say that. <laughs> well, and so sort of related was this other listener point. I appreciate Mike Madrid's perspective. How do we find a reasonable way to communicate and work with people with different political views? On the other hand, what is the best way to punish people like Kevin McCarthy and Devin Nunes? I mean, Mike Madrid, your response to that question. Well, my goal, and I think it probably will be for the next few years, is going to be a work towards an America where we can return to a time where there is a healthy debate. Disagreeing with one another, even passionately at times, is actually a healthy sign of democracy. Where we get into danger is when, when people or organizations, political parties, starts to believe that if it is not their way, then they'd rather tear down our institutions, that it becomes a threat to the American experiment. That's to me is the number one threat facing American style democracy and probably will be for the better part of two decades. So I think that while we must be vigilant uh, in opposing those forces, we must be equally vigilant in accepting the fact that our ideas are not always right. Uh, I, I, I'd like to tell people if you can't disagree, if you can't tell me immediately five areas where you disagree with your own political party, you're probably part of the problem in American democracy today. And I would hope that the listeners would kind of reflect on that, is if you agree lock, stock, and barrel with your own party, it's probably because you've been consuming so much partisan media on either side that you've now convinced yourself or focused yourself on the idea that the enemy is the opposite political party. So until we end that vicious cycle, we're probably going to keep going getting worse and worse. Mike Madrid, co-founder of the Lincoln Project and political consultant and partner at Grassroots Lab. Thanks for joining us. Also, Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent at KQED, co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. Appreciate it. Having you on as well. Blanca Torres produced today's segment. Thanks to our listeners for their questions, comments. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.